That's what John is doing in the book of Revelation is doing. John is doing that tonight and he is saying to us that I'm going to show you and give you a different perspective on the world. And it might not necessarily change your situation or your circumstances, but what it will do is change the way and reframe the way you see the world around you, including your own stuff that you're going through at this moment. What John is doing in this incredible passage is inviting us into the very throne room of God to see the world as it really is. Two things tonight. Why do we need to look? That's what John's calling us to do, to do. Look, a throne. Why do we need to look, number one? Number two, what do we see when we look? Why do we need to look and what do we see when we look? Let's look at number one. Why do we need to look at the throne? And if you look at this passage, there are images everywhere. And if you've been coming, I said this a couple of weeks ago, it's all the word of God. And so all of it's important. But if we try to hyper scrutinize this image in this passage, we'll overinterpret it. And that's what lots of people do with the book of Revelation. And they end up missing the intention of the passage. Very clearly, if you look at Revelation chapter 4, you see what the point of the passage is, and it is the throne room of God is the center. How do we know? Well, look in those 11 verses, and you'll find that the throne is mentioned 12 times. If the author tells us something 12 times in 11 verses, that's the point. And the first thing John shows us is that the throne is occupied. Look at verse 2. Behold, or it's another way of saying, look, a throne in heaven, and I love this, and there is one sitting on it. That's amazing. Think about that, sitting on it. John is saying, come, look, let me show you something. The throne is not empty. And God is not pacing God is not wiping the sweat from his brow. He's not frantic. He's not panicking. He's not asleep at the wheel. He is in session. And he's seated. And no one is going to overcome him. So the one on the throne is seated, but not only is he seated, John shows us that he's also shining. And notice that John's not telling us what God's what exactly what God looks like, okay? Because that's impossible to describe, but he says he has the appearance of precious jewels. Eugene Peterson says what makes a precious jewel precious is that the way it collects and magnifies light and intensifies it when light hits it. For example, if you look at the passage, Jasper, usually red, But depending on how the light hits it, it can be red, yellow, green, blue, or brown. But light goes through it and does all sorts of crazy things. In other words, it's mysterious, it's intriguing, it's captivating. And John is saying, come. Think about precious stones. 
And that, in some small way, as much as I can give to you tonight, John says, that's what God is like. He's that beautiful. He's that intriguing and that mysterious. That's what the throne room is like. And remember, it's not meant to amuse us, but it's meant, John gives us that image of beauty to move us to worship and to change us. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 6. My favorite part by far of the whole passage. I love this image. Before the throne was a sea of glass. Let me explain. In the Bible, the sea is a metaphor for chaos. Look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Do a survey. That's what you will find. For example, when God in Exodus took his people out of slavery, he took them through what? The sea. Out of the sea. Jonah. Jonah jumped into the sea and what was it? It was a place of judgment. In a few weeks, there's more I could say, but in a few weeks we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12 when things get really interesting and we see beasts coming out from the sea. Coming out from a place of chaos. Because the sea is a symbol of chaos, but in the presence of God, the sea is calm like glass. Think about that. Is the sea ever calm? No, even on a calm green flag day, you've never seen the sea as smooth as glass until you get into the throne room of God. Do you feel like, even on the outside, does your life feel like it's complete chaos? And maybe if it doesn't appear that way on the outside, do you ever lay down your head and go to sleep and feel like on the inside, you're just, it's just complete chaos going on inside of you? You know what Revelation chapter 4 tells us? The chaos will not win. Isn't that good news? And so why do we need to look? Why is John saying, look at the throne? Well, think about the original audience. Remember, the original readers were following Jesus, but they were being beheaded. They were being thrown in prison. They were suffering and being persecuted because they were following the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are anything like them, they're looking around at the world and they're saying, what in the world is happening? I don't understand the world in which I see. Anybody else feel that? We just celebrated an anniversary of 9-11. You see things like that. You see the pain in your own life. You see undeserved treatment in relationships around you. You see people gripped by addiction and it tempts us in that moment to say, God, are you on your throne? Are you up there anywhere? Or are you asleep at the wheel? Anybody feel that? John says, come. Look, a throne. And it's not empty. But there's one that is seated on the throne. 
And he is in absolute control. You know what John's calling us to do? He's calling us to stop looking at God through our circumstances and to start in other rather and to start looking at our circumstances through God. Let me say that again. He is calling us to stop looking at God through our circumstances and start looking at our circumstances through God. That's what he's calling us to do, to see everything in our life through the throne room. Some of you are seniors and graduating in a few months, and you have no idea what you're going to do. No idea where you're going to live. No idea where you're going to work. Some of you are grad students that are graduating in a year, and you are in the exact same boat. And the temptation for you in that moment is to think real peace is going to come when I can just get my ducks in a row. When I can get my life ironed out and know exactly where I'm going and have a plan. Is having a plan good? Yes, that's good. But you know what John says? Come. Let me show you something. You see the one sitting on the throne? He knows you intimately. He knows every hair on your head. And he's not wringing his hands, pacing frantic about what you're going to do with your life and what your future is going to look like. Why? Because he knows. Some of you have seen your life unravel since you've been at Ole Miss. You've seen it just unravel and be unraveled by sin. And your temptation in those moments is to say, I just need a change of Location. I need to get out of here because I don't want my future spouse and I do not want the people that I'm going to work fit for to know anything that I've done while I'm at Ole Miss. And so I'm just going to escape it all and I'm going to start over and I'm going to be more disciplined and make better decisions. And John says, no. Bring the chaos of your sin into the throne room of God and let it be made as smooth as glass. You see, the only one surprised by your sin is you. Jesus is not surprised. You see, the beauty of Christianity is that there is no plan B. You feel like you've made a wreck of your life and you're suddenly on God's plan B. You're like, no! There's only one plan for your life. And guess what? The one that's on the throne is completely in charge of that plan. He's always on his throne. And he's always orchestrating and working his plan out in your life. And here's what that means. That he takes your failures, your shame, the things that you deeply regret, and all of the good stuff, and all of the celebrations, and he weaves all those things together, and no, I don't know how all that works itself out, and why he does the things that he does, but God is good, and he works all those things together, even your suffering, to make you into something beautiful. Your story is not over. And some of you think your story's over because it feels like your story's over. No, it's just beginning. God is using those things and making you into something beautiful and he's doing the exact same thing with the world. Friends, if you view your circumstances and your life through the lens of your own circumstances, it will lead to despair 
and it will crush you. Think about that. If you view the world in your life through your circumstances, it will crush you or lead you to despair. Why do I say that? Well, because when things are going well and you're getting exactly what you want, you will be happy and you will say, God is good. Let's praise him. It's a God thing. But when you don't get what you want and God strips something away from you, then instead of just disappointing you and being a minor setback, it actually rips you apart on the inside and causes you to be undone. Let me make one very specific application. It's rush, it's rush week. And there's lots of freshmen in this room. And this weekend, some of you are not going to get what you want. It's just true. And if you view that event through your circumstances, it will lead you into despair and it will crush you. But if you look at that event through the throne room of God, you realize that God is still on his throne and that he's weaving the details of your life, even though it hurts and even though you don't understand it in order to make you into something beautiful and that you are exactly where he wants you to be come this weekend. What's happening in your life right now at this moment that if you don't view through the throne room of God will lead you to despair? You see, what John is saying is that the solution for our life is to view our life through the occupied throne room of God, not through our circumstances. Secondly, not only why do we need to look, but secondly, what do we see when we look? Look at verse 4. Around the throne, he sees 24 elders. There's lots of different takes on this. I take this to mean, as many others take it to mean, the complete number of the people of God standing symbolically before the throne of God, worshiping and praising Him. The number 24, 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament, put those together and you get 24. The complete, representing the complete number of Christians or the people of God. Verses 6 through 8, John sees four living creatures surrounding the throne and here's where it gets a little crazy. These creatures have six wings, if you look at the passage, and they have eyeballs all over them. And there's been much speculation about what these creatures are and what they do. But again, I go with many people here and believe them to simply be symbolic for all of created order. All of creation. God, they are worshiping and praising God. But look at the passage, and I think it's very, very clear. If you look at the, the, the second half of the passage, the emphasis there is not so much on figuring out the DNA structure of these four living creatures. That's not the point. The point is not on what they are, but it's on what, what they do. 
And what do they do? They lay everything down and they worship. They have no power whatsoever over the one that is seated on the throne. Look at verses 8 and 10. You see all of the elders and you see all of the four living creatures. Basically all of creation is bowing down. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so you pull back the veil on this world. Remember, John's pulling back the curtain. And what do we see that's happening right now at this very moment? Worship. At the center of the universe is worship. And here's what this means. If human beings are created by God in God's image, that means every single one of us tonight is a worshiper. And it's not a matter if some people worship and other people don't. No, everyone worships. It's not, will you worship? The question is what you worship. Some people worship a good time. Some people worship the weekend. Some people worship good grades and people's approval and your parents' approval and sex and money. And we could go on and on. And it's not that those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad when they're kept in their proper place. But when we start to worship them, what kind of taskmaster are they? They're an evil taskmaster. Because they lead us into slavery. Think about your grades. It's good to make good grades, but when you start to worship grades and it starts to be the thing that you live for, how does that how did how does your schoolwork and your academics treat you? Some of you aren't sleeping. Your first round of tests is this week or next week, and you aren't sleeping. Why? Because you are so afraid. <coughs> Because you worship grades that if you fail that test, you are a failure. Why? Because grace is nowhere to be found in grades. Because they are an evil taskmaster if you worship them. What about people's approval? When people's approval rules you, you'll do anything and everything, even dehumanizing things. Even things that you deeply regret in order to be liked. You'll spend your life doing things that you hate in order to win people's approval of you. And it's an evil taskmaster. Trust me, I've lived most of my life that way. Parents' approval. Some of you are in majors and classes that you hate. And you're afraid and scared to actually push against your parents because you're scared to disappoint them. Is having a good name and parents' approval good? Yes, it's good. But it, when it rules you, it actually destroys you. And here's the point. If the world is built around the worship of the one true God who sits on his throne, and that's what we've seen. To worship anything else other than Him will actually enslave you instead of free you. 
It'll actually lead to slavery rather than true freedom. And so what are we to do? Well, here's what we're to do. Look. Look at the throne. And John says, come into the throne room and let me show you the beautiful reigning God who is beyond description. So that when you see the beautiful picture that John puts out for us in the book of Revelation, you start to look at your other idols and the things that you bow down to in your heart and you see that they pale in comparison to him. Some of you at this point are saying this, Jason, like this is incredible passage. But here's one thing I'm convinced of, it's I don't belong here. I don't belong. You're saying come into the throne room. There's no way I can go into this throne room that has been laid out for us. Last spring, I was invited for an all-access tour of the IPF, indoor practice, practice facility. For those of you who know me, I eat that stuff up. I was like a kid in a candy shop. We walk up, and the guy that invited me puts his thumbprint on the keypad. The door opens. We walk in. We go into the equipment room. All the jerseys, all the helmets, all the stickers. We walk back into this huge t-shirt room, and there's all kinds of Nike gear, and he says, pick out whatever you want. I go into the locker room. He's telling me exactly what happens before game time at every minute. He tells me exactly what they're saying and where Coach Freeze is standing. I am in awe. Takes me into the training room. Then we walk down the tunnel all the way to the field past Chucky Mullins' statue. And I walk out into the stadium. We go into the new part. I see Coach Freeze's new office. I go into the players' meeting room, which you've probably seen that on some video. Incredible. And to top it all off, I go to the war room. What's the war room? It's this big round table that no one has access to. And you walk into it, and there's all these boards, and they were covered up at the time behind a key and a wooden door. But behind those doors are hundreds of recruits, years out. And that's where the coaches get in there and they just hash it out and fight for their recruit and their needs for the offensive line, defensive ends, whatever it might be. And all I could think about was I don't belong here. What am I doing here? But I did belong there. Why? Well, because I was invited. Look at verse 1. This is where we'll close. Jesus invites you. Jesus says, come up here and I will show you, friends, you do belong in the throne room. Because Jesus himself has invited you there. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. And notice this. He's not just inviting John. The whole Bible tells us that he's inviting sinners. Like me and you. He's 
inviting people that are academically dishonest. People that are addicted to pornography. People that are entrenched in addiction. Come. I'm inviting you into the throne room, Jesus says. Come up here. You see this room? You belong here. Not because of anything in you, but because of me. Because I have invited you. And here's my question. Don't you want to be in that room? The room that's been described here? Jesus is inviting you tonight. Will you come into the very throne room of God at the invitation of Jesus himself? Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage. And I pray that you would drive this passage into our hearts in such a way that it moves us.